Good morning. I uh, almost hate to be the guy who has to preach the same day that we start serving lunch because I know you're already thinking. But um, my prayer is that your hearts are captured uh, by the love of Jesus this morning, especially as we open his word and his spirit speaks to us. Uh, One of the things that I want to prepare you for is that that usually comes because uh, the Spirit's role is to remind us of things that we've been taught. The Spirit's role is also to convict us concerning sin. And the Spirit's role is also to encourage us concerning righteousness. So you, you might have like a trifecta of emotion happening as you're listening this morning. And I just want you guys to be prepared for whatever the Spirit wants to say to you. Because it is this uh, number of people that make up this church, right? So our church is only as good as the individual's intimate relationship with Jesus. And so this is kind of the focus that you see John pulling out to the letter, the church at Ephesus. We're starting a series this morning on Revelation. Uh, Revelation was written by John while he was in exile off uh, the coast of present-day Turkey in a little island called Patmos. And he was exiled there as a result of persecution under the Roman emperor Domitian in about 95 AD. So about the time that he arrived, he thought, maybe I should write letters to what's happening. <laughs> it's about time for me. And, and what happens is he was, uh, we learn at the very beginning of Revelation, he is uh, in the spirit on the Lord's day, meaning he's worshiping. And then all of a sudden, the revelation happens, and it's powerful. And so Revelation begins with this vision of Jesus. I'm going to read just a few verses from it, but before that, I just kind of want to just give a layout, right? It, it begins with this vision of Jesus. Then for a couple of chapters, it walks us into um, seven different churches, letters from Jesus Christ himself to these churches. And then after that is all the confusing stuff um, that is probably hard for us to interpret or understand. But if you're hoping this morning that I was going to get into like premillennialism or amillennialism or postmillennialism or whether I'm a preterist or a futurist, safe to say, not doing that. Okay, um, my goal this morning is that you understand one thing and one thing only about church and revelation. Overall, Jesus Christ wins. Okay, so whatever we're facing today, whatever we're looking at, whatever culture looks at, whatever we see in the Supreme Court, all these different things that are making us uptight and worried and concerned, Jesus wins. He wins every time. Okay, and we want to be people who understand that that is what revelation is about. It's about Jesus. Okay? It's about Jesus. And we don't want to back away no matter what the culture says, no matter what our courts say, no matter what our president says, no matter what our politicians say, no matter what our own wicked hearts at times say. We want, we need Jesus. So today in the next six sermons will be about him. Specifically, what his spirit said to those churches and what he wants to say to us as a church today. These letters that you see um, written to these churches, and he lists the churches in in Revelation chapter 1 as Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. If you go ahead and advance the slide, this is just a little timeline for geeks. I'm kind of a geek, so I like timelines. Here's, Here's a little bit of what you can look at. It's believed that Ephesus was kind of the hub for ministry in Paul's third missionary journey, and then you see all these other churches kind of flowing out of it. And so um, the, the proposed route of these letters, because what we understand is the letters to like Ephesus, it wasn't just for Ephesus. It dealt specifically with the problems and issues that Ephesus was facing, 
but it says that these letters, all of them, were to be read in every church, and everybody should take heed. That's why you hear phrases like, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, okay? So we're not, you, you don't get to just be comfortable and still listen to Ephesus, because that seems a little easier to swallow. No way. He wants, you, he wants you to encounter all of it, okay? And so the proposed route of these letters being delivered is Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, and they kind of follow that same lineup as you're reading through Revelation. And it's helpful for us these next six weeks, today included, that you guys would pray for the ministers. Seriously. It's not easy to preach letters that uh, talk about things that we stink at. And, and not only things that we, that we really struggle with, but like things that we're act, like actively opposed to. And so these are, these are not going to be like soft cushion, easy listening sort of messages. That's okay with you. And if it's not, sorry you're offended. We're hoping that the Spirit does His work this morning and, and gets our attention. You can look at in these letters, there's usually a, a criticism, a commendation, an instruction, and then a promise. Not every one of the letters has all of those elements, but all of them together contain those elements. All right. <laughs> Starting in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says this, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I love this part. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then skip down to verse 17. The vision happens. John is like captured. <laughs> And then he says this, when I saw him, because he, a voice like thundering water is behind him, right? So you can't really ignore voices that loud. It's powerful. And so John's like, what? And he turns around and says, when I saw him, I felt though dead. That's a pretty good response. We speak too quickly. We should pay attention here. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Game changer, okay? So write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we just want before us this idea, and we're going to see it kind of play out in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which is our text this morning. But more than anything, love is the means and the end. So as you hear that phrase, jot it down, it's, it's in your notes, in your bulletin, but love is the means and the end. You're going to see that play out. He loved us, that's what we see in verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's powerful for us to grasp right at the onset. He's the one who loved us. He's the one who pursued us. He's the one who forgave us. He's the one who sacrifices us, sacrificed for us. He's the one who says who we are. Because you see what, and he made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. 
Your goal isn't for you. Your goal is not to live your best life now. Your goal is Jesus. Your goal is to live a life submitted and surrendered to him. Love has always been the means and the end. So today we'll look at the strengths, the weaknesses, and then the solution or the promise that we see. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, oil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That sounds like a pretty great... <laughs> Pretty great start here, right? There's, if, if I'm a father, which I am, right, and I have a daughter who's like 16, and, and as we begin to consider this idea of college, um, how many parents in here have put kids through college or sent them away and they've, right, raise your hands if you have kids about that age, right? Um, do you not have grades that they would be connected to a body of Christ and grow and thrive and all that wherever they are? Is that not a concern that you have? Like, you want to see that be the case. And so, when I look at the church at Ephesus, I read their, their works and their endurance and not growing weary and how they've tested these false teachers and they found them to be false by the word of God. And I'm like, hey, this is a rock star church. I am all over this. I'm on their website. I'm reading their statement of faith. And I'm like, yes. Like, I hope my daughter gets connected with a church like this. Right? This is kind of my thinking. This is kind of what I want. You have to understand when it says works, they're talking about like behavior or holiness. And it depicts this idea that they took sin seriously. Do we? Can that be said of me? Can that be said of you? Can that be said of your home? Do you take walking righteously before God seriously? They were serious about holiness. Verses 2 and 3 talk about the idea of endurance and not growing weary. You say, well, what does that mean? It's pretty straightforward. These people handled suffering really well. And just for a moment, consider, we, we know those and we ourselves have been in positions where suffering has come upon us, whether it's a, a physical ailment, whether it's a loss of a... And we know if we spiral or we watch others spiral because the foundation of their faith is weak, Right? It, so John is saying, well, Jesus is saying, you guys are, are good at handling suffering. You're bearing up for my name's sake. Meaning, you are people who are enduring persecution because you're holding to a standard of holiness in a totally amoral world, and you're saying, I'm for Jesus. And the Spirit is saying, look, you guys get it. That's awesome. You're bearing up patiently for my name's sake. You have to realize that they, they stood against the pagan mistreatment of Christianity. You have to recall that Christianity was not even a recognized religion or belief until the early 300s under Constantine. So these people were actively opposed everywhere they went. It's a safe bet. 
Fairly safe bet. None of you is going to leave here and have your house ransacked because you believe in Jesus. None of you is probably going to have your possessions taken from you. None of you is probably going to be jailed today because you believe in Jesus. None of you. Right? None of you. So this is where John is coming from as he's explaining these things. It's pretty amazing that these people, they're not growing weary. They were committed it says in verse 2 that they tested these false teachers. They found them to be false. These are people who also took their doctrine very seriously. Again, very commendable. We want a church like that. We want, it to, we want to be a church who says our doctrine matters. What You can't live right if you don't believe right. And this is in part because of the Nicolaitan struggle, which I'll discuss here in a minute. But how did they find them to be False. Well, 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. I'm not going to go there now, but like that's the, the test, right? Are these people exalting Jesus? Is Jesus the center and the fixture? If not. And so the church at Ephesus was like, no, we're about him. We're about Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? So what's God saying to you as you're listening to this? Do you take sin seriously? Do you endure suffering well? Do you bear up for the name of Jesus Christ? Are you someone who tests false teachers by the word of God? Are you buried in his revealed and written word for you so that you know what is false when it comes? You're not just hoping you have an idea? 1 Peter 1 Verses 6 and 7 say this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's telling those people who are reading this, suffering, Staying committed, taking serious holiness is important if you believe in Jesus. So right now, F is good. Like, yeah, they understood these things. But then it turns a corner. Verse 4 says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Just straightforward. Now, we know more about Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. It was the capital of a Roman province of Asia. Um, it was a major trade center. You could see on that map that we showed just its location made it very important. It was home to uh, the temple of Artemis or Diana, which is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. She was uh, the Greek goddess, and so there was obviously some uh, idol worship happening in Ephesus. But we see Ephesus in chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 20 of the book of Acts. And there's lots there. Timothy was involved with this church. Paul was involved with this church. Apollos was involved with this church. John was involved with this church. Sounds like an all-star team. Um, but it said they, they lost their love that they had at first. So what's the weakness? I've heard it put this way, and this really struck me. Their doctrine was as clear as ice, but just as cold. 
the Ephesians, they didn't fail in their covenant theology and what they believed. They failed in their covenant task. And you say, well, give me an example. Um, okay, I, I'm married, right? Uh, if I choose throughout the whole course of my marriage, been 17 years now or something like that, right? If I choose to, to never step outside the bounds of my marriage, right? This is what I'm, I'm supposed to do, right? I have eyes only for my wife. And I live my whole life that way, just working it out. But if I do everything that I'm supposed to do as a husband, if I believe in the vows that I said, and I carry those vows out in a way that shows no affection, no deference, no forgiveness, no grace, and no mercy, I'm still a husband, just a lousy one, right? What about you? Are there those things that God has called you to that you carry out lovelessly? And can I say, this is one of the harshest rebukes that you're going to see in all the seven letters, that this is the church that lost its first love. This is the church that had um, a deep and abiding commitment. We're going to get into that just in a moment as we just outline some of the things that happened in Acts that talk about, like, what was this church all about? So the question is, like, what was their first love? Remember the example we gave before. I'm a father. I'm sending my daughter away, and I'm, I'm up online. I'm checking out their statement of faith. I'm like, man, this church is great. And then all of a sudden, I'm starting to read some reviews online, or I'm bumping into people who have gone to this church, and they're like, yeah, those people, they really believe they're solid. They're very biblical, but they're jerks. I'm like, oh, well, that's not really compatible with believing in Jesus. It's just not compatible to be someone who believes in Jesus and is a jerk with doctrine or carrying those loveless way. And so all of a sudden, now I'm starting to have some concerns as a father, like, huh, that's interesting. And maybe you could just say it this way. As I was preparing for this, I was listening to a podcast and there was a, there was a, a line that just struck me. It said, you're here to expand the kingdom of God, not win an argument or be comfortable. Now, many of us think that to be good Christians means that we make sure that the moral majority of Christianity is propagated throughout culture, through politics and things of this nature. And this is exactly some of the things that this church was up against you see, love for God and love for others is the point, the, the whole point of it all. And Jesus says these two are inseparable, right? Like you can't love God and not love people. It just doesn't work that way. Matthew 22, 34 through uh, 40 walks through that where there's Pharisees and Sadducees and they're gathering together and then there's a lawyer trying to trip up Jesus, trying to say, hey, what is, well, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus, you know, kindly gives him two because Jesus doesn't like to play by the rules. He says, hey, it's, it's about love for God and love for your neighbor. These two are the greatest. The lawyer's probably thinking, well, I asked you for one. And he's like, they are one. <laughs> They're inseparable. It's a, that's, the, that's the whole point. You say, well, what are some examples? Well, in 1 John 4, 18 through 19, it says this. There is no fear in love. 
But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You're like, man, I'm terribly anxious. I'm full of fear all the time. How do I get over that? Grow in love. Grow in love. Don't, don't grow in mitigating your circumstances. Don't grow in control of your circumstances so that you never have to experience those things. Grow in love. It's love, Paul said, Corinthians 8, that builds the church. Knowledge makes us prideful. Love builds. This is the problem at Ephesus. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says this, If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, I don't even know what that is, by the way. Okay, just truth to life. No idea what the tongue of angels is. <laughs> he says, If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Hold that for a minute. We could turn those on and I could walk over and I could just start banging the cymbals. Just let me, many of you have thought, man, I really need comfort. Can you just, just bang the cymbals for about an hour? I'd feel, that'd be fantastic. It'd be horrible, right? How many of you grown up with like kids who've learned how to drum? They love the cymbals. You're like, dude, come on. Lay off this. This is what he's saying. If I speak in tongue of men and angels, have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. This is written to the church in Corinth that is fantastically spiritual and is doing amazing things, spiritually speaking, but they're lacking love. He says, look, if you don't have love, you're missing the whole point. Same thing he's saying to Ephesus. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and knowledge, so if, if I am prophetically gifted, if I am full gift of preaching and teaching, and I, and I have all faith and I can move mountains, guess what? If I don't have love, I've got nothing. Where do you land? Most of us, and let's just be honest, if we are lovelessly executing the commands of Christ, can't see it. We cannot see it. We need, this is the idea of community. We need people around us who are like, boy, dude, that was a little jerkish. <laughs> like, I love you, but man, like, come down off your little high and mighty pedestal. Not so cool how you hammered that guy. Like, oh, so Ephesus was kind of like that? Yeah. And the reason that these things in, in the scriptures for us for all time is because we're like that. We just need to recall that love is the means and the end. So what happens in verses 5 through 7? He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Let's just be really clear. You can keep doing church. You can keep being a loveless executor of Christian doctrine. And guess what you're going to get? You're going to get the spirit removed and the testimony and witness of Jesus Church. Listen, folks, that haunts me. That should haunt you. That should haunt you to think, what would it be like if I, if I lovelessly executed doctrine, if I really believed the right things and I was a total jerk in the process, and then God says, look, I'm just going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to take the light and the glory of Jesus Christ, the power and anointing of the Spirit, just away from you. Folks, that haunts me. I don't ever want to be someone who's known that way. And my prayer is, us as a church, I don't want to be known that way. 
We can stand for the right things. We can endure difficulty. We can be people who take sin seriously, and we can do it with love. It says, remember and repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, so what's he talking about? He goes on, he says this. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's essentially this. He's calling them back to how the church began. And so then we have to maybe think back through, what, what is it? How did the church begin? What did it look like? I'm only going to highlight just a few things here that are really powerful. The church really gets its beginnings at the end of Acts chapter 18. It says this, now a Jew, now, now realize that Revelation was written in about 90, 95, somewhere in there, A.D. Paul wrote and, and planted the letter or sorry, planted the church at Ephesus around like the mid-50s. So this is like somewhere between 30 and 40 years, give or take, removed. So these people would have only been a generation-ish from that. They would have remembered the stories. They would have remembered these things. He's speaking to a people who would have been familiar with these terms. So when he's saying, repent, do the works that you did at first, immediately their minds are like, yes, I'm with you. So what were the works? It says, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. It was awesome. He had been instructed in the way. I love that. Let's just call Christianity the way. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, literally meaning he was passionate, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, that he, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, again, the point of community. He's preaching baptism and forgiveness of sins, and the church exploding because the, the Spirit has been given, Acts chapter 1, verses 8, and, and there are churches who are still preaching the baptism only of John. They're not preaching the idea that you can actually, the Spirit actually dwells within you. And, and so Priscilla and Aquila, knowing this, are people who speak the truth in love. They're like, look, Apollos, here's the deal. This is great. You're expounding from the Scriptures. You're competent in the Scriptures. We love that. Did you know? And then they outline. And then all of a sudden, things begin to take off. And then Paul shows up on the scene in Ephesus. He finds some disciples, and he asks them the same question, like, hey, have you heard? And they're like, uh, yeah, we're like the baptism of, no, baptism of the Spirit. And so then Paul prays for them, and then they start speaking in tongues and prophesying, and the church, boom, explodes. You're like, okay, I'm about that. Let, let's, let's see what that's all about. And he keeps on. And then Paul, I love this. It says that Paul was reasoning daily in the, in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years so that the residents of Asia heard the work of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Hello. Like if you're ever complaining that maybe you have to do something too much, how about reasoning daily for two years with people who are opposed to you and need correction? I think my mind would explode. And then there's the seven sons of people who are watching all these miraculous things happening by the hand of Paul through God's spirit in him. 
And then there's like easily one of my favorite stories in all of scripture, right? Where these seven sons of Sceva, they're like trying to cast out a demon. And then when they do that, it just kind of goes sideways. And the, <laughs> and the, and the evil spirit actually says, um, he, he responds to a question. You know, the seven sons of Sceva say, I adjure you, and this is in uh, chapter 19 of Acts, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. <laughs> and the evil spirit answers like, Paul I know, Jesus I'm aware of, but who are you? It just kind of catches, my, it catches me like, oh, wow, that's pretty powerful. On to, um, to just like kick them out. And when that whole exchange happens, it says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. So everybody pretty quickly heard that the seven sons of Sceva got their butts kicked and left naked and wounded. Read it. It's in the Bible. Seriously. It's awesome. Okay. And so as this whole thing happens, listen to what, what it says here. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. How could it not? Seven dudes are beaten up, their clothes taken. There's no dispute who won that fight, right? Like if you start a fight with clothes on and it's done and you don't have clothes on, you lost. It's just how that works. Like, this isn't like a little like, you know, backyard brawl and there's dispute. This is like you're done, okay? And it says, fear fell upon them all. Listen to this. The name of Jesus was extolled. The name of Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And there it is. Confessing and divulging. He says, remember, repent, do the works you did at first. So the idea that these people stood for truth and they lovingly challenged people, people were fearful of what had happened, but they were also like drawn to it. And that all these people with their magic arts came and they burned their books. This in Acts chapter 19, 11 through 20. The works they did at first included confession and repentance. They included confession and repentance. So often we start to hear of a move of the Lord and we're like, oh yeah. Um, yeah, let's just, let's just get real excited about all that God is doing. And, and God always calls his people to reflect on their hearts, whether they're aligning with his word, to repent and to follow after him. He is the Lord, not me. He is in charge, not me. And so it's never about like a feel-good theology. It's more of this idea of like, God, you came, like it says at the beginning of Revelation. You're the one who freed me from my sins, and then you called me into service. You see, the Nicolaitans were people who uh, struggled with syncretism, which is this idea of kind of having an accommodating attitude toward other religions kind of being mixed in with Christianity. And one of the primary elements was emperor worship. Like they, they worshiped who was in charge. I wish that was applicable today. <laughs> Gee whiz. Like seriously, we, we are a people who worship our leaders. And so this is being called out. The other thing that the Nicolaitans struggled with was licentious living. This idea that, like, I can sin and expect my salvation. It's really not that big of a deal. Let me tell you, it's a big deal. So maybe the question then that we need to ask ourselves is this. Where has duty or morality, uniformity, fear, where have those things taken hold in me personally? Or us corporately as a church. How do we turn? 
What's that look like? You see, when it says confess and divulge, and I'm going to have uh, Jada, you can come, go ahead and come on up. There's going to be a song to close. Think of this for, ju- for just a minute. It says that they came confessing and divulging. And when they came confessing and divulging, like many of us could confess a sin. I struggle with whatever. I struggle, I struggle I'm, dude, brother, would you pray for me? I'm struggling with lust. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. I will definitely pray for you, right? But the difference with the church at Ephesus and the way that it started and what Paul, or not what Paul, what John is calling them back to is this idea of, it says, confessing and divulging. When was the last time that you actually divulged the specifics of what you struggled with to another brother or sister to pray for you that you might receive healing? When did that happen? Because he's saying confessing and divulging. These people weren't just saying, hey, we're, we're struggling with idol worship. They brought all of their books that taught them these things to the center of the city and they burned them. It says it was 50,000 pieces of silver in value. The estimation in today's worth is about 1.5 million to a billion, right? That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. That's like, I'm just gonna get rid of those things that are most valuable to me. They're confessing the sin and then getting specific about it. So the question then becomes, why is vulnerability such a challenge for me? Why is it so difficult for me to actually say, like, this is where I struggle? Like, when you walk with Jesus, you don't have to be awesome. You get to be who you are. You get to be the struggler. You get to be the one stuck. You get to be the one who is broke, one who is tired, the one who is scared. And you're resting in the one who isn't any of those. That's what it's about. And that's what Paul, or sorry, John is saying over and over and over again. Like, you lost your, your first love. You're missing the point. You're leaning on him, not on you. Somewhere along the line, the church at Ephesus had gotten to this point where they believed the right things and didn't love well. And so as uh, this song is being played, I just want to encourage you to reflect. Just to reflect, like, what is the Lord asking of me? Is there something specific personally? And then corporately, like, is there something that our church struggles with and then just ask the Lord in the stillness of your own heart, those things. And then afterwards, you guys can, uh, I'll come back up and just pray for us real briefly and we'll be dismissed to lunch. Um, but those who would like to stay, feel free. The elders are going to be around for prayer. I'll be here. There'll be others around the sanctuary who, who will stay if you would like prayer. Don't leave this moment where God might be calling you to repent, to confess and divulge. Father, we come to you knowing that you are great and you are glorious. Thank you that your love has always been the means and the end, that we get to be people who walk after you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the letter to the church at Ephesus and what it teaches us about how we endure, how we take seriously holiness, how we um, are people who love you, preeminent, and love others. As we go now... Uh, to fellowship over lunch. I pray these conversations would be uplifting and strengthening to our hearts and glorifying to you. It's in your strong name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.